Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Academic Life channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Dana Malone. Today, we'll be talking to Ian M. Cook and Prem Kumar Rajaram, two of the three editors of Opening Up the University, Teaching and Learning with Refugees. Celine Coton is also an editor on this book. Ian and Prem, welcome to the show. Welcome. (laughs) Thank you, Dana. (laughs) I'm so thrilled to have you. Um, I wonder if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself. Sure. So I am the Director of Studies of Olive Weekend Program, it's the Open Learning Initiative, which is an open access education program for displaced people, um, which is housed at the Central European University in Budapest. But by training, I'm a social anthropologist, I did my PhD in social anthropology and sociology, and I did research on small city urban change in India. And I also have research interests into scholarly podcasting and how that's changing academia. And um, yeah, that's me. Um, and that's Ian. And Ian, that's Ian. Right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Just to clarify for our listeners. <laughs> yeah, that's Ian. Yeah, and this is Thank me, Prem. Thank you. <laughs> um, I'm a professor of sociology and social anthropology here at Central European University. Um, I'm also head of the um, of the Olive Program unit that David mentioned, uh, that Ian, Ian. mentioned. Sorry. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> Uh, and I'm director of studies of the other Olive program within the Olive unit, which is a university preparatory program, which um, uh, trains students for eight months uh, to help them make competitive applications, university degree programs in, in Europe. Um, and my research is on a mixture of uh, colonialism, capitalism, um, forced displacement. Um, and I also work on um, generally on the topic of education and critical pedagogy with Ian and Celine. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, so I, why don't you talk a little bit about what inspired you all to pursue this book? Well, the book came out of a conference, as many edited volumes do, and the conference took place in 2018, maybe, or 2019 or 2017. <laughs> I think it was March March of 2019. Now, I, I was just checking whether you'd read the book. That's what it was. And, um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and it was, and that was a project which was in which um, 
us at the Central European University worked together with a couple of other universities who were also running similar programs, also called Olive, like open learning initiatives. And we brought together people from those programs together with like we had an open call and we reached out to certain people and we wanted to explore um, yeah, what opening up the university meant in different realms. So stuff to do with pedagogy, stuff to do with politics and also things to do with the, the pu- public, so the general public as well. And so that was a really nice conference and we decided after that there's lots of good stuff there that we wanted to um, share with the world, but then we put out a more general call and, um, and got loads of really interesting submissions. Um, of, of course, a book can only be as long as a book is already. It's got quite a lot of chapters. And so, um, yeah, we, we brought together, I think we wanted, we wanted to make sure there was lots of good examples in the book. So like where people or basically universities or people working at the edge of universities were opening up their education programs in different ways and it was good to get lots of examples of this but we always wanted to make sure we framed it within a within a broader um context which is like the sort of the changing university the role of the university and so like to bring these sort of two things in together and I think also in relation to that, um, we started the Olive program way back in 2016, and we never really had the space to sit and reflect on what we have done, what we'd like to do, what um, learning uh, together with refugee students means for us and how it shapes our common and individual ethos and approach as educators. So I think the book and the conference first and the book really gave us opportunity to do that. So I think, at least for me, and I think for the other editors as well, as well as some of the authors, this was a really important um, moment to be able to actually find space and time to reflect and think. And I think it's also helped us to think about the next stage of Olive, of this program that works with refugees, as well as our own individual educational and research work with uh, displaced people. Mm. Thank you. I, I'd like to maybe linger a little bit here and and maybe have you expound a little bit more and just talk to us a little bit more about the Olive program um, since it, it kind of is a, uh, it's, it's a theme throughout and, and obviously your work there is what spurred um, a lot of the thinking around, around these issues. Sure. So um, a, for a while at the university where we both work, there's been access education programs. Um, Prem used to work a lot in a program called the Roma Graduate Preparatory Program. When I was a PhD student at the university, I was teaching there. And um, the idea behind that program was that, uh, as, as I'm sure you know, like um, Roma are a group of people who, are, who face many marginalities in Europe and lots of discrimination, like how to set up a, a university program that would allow them to, to some degree overcome some of these marginalizations to gain access into um, yeah, into full-time study. And so about, I think around like 2012, 13, Prem together with some other colleagues started to discuss, okay, like can we extend the ideas that were developed and learnt in this program to also um, serve displaced students in Europe. And so this was this was going on. Um, there was a group in um, Hungary that's no longer active called MIGSOL, it was Migrant Solidarity, some member, which is like a, a migrant-led solidarity group. And then some people who were involved in that came to speak to Prem and were asking like, okay, can, can we start to set something up? And then 2015, 2016, there was a politically orchestrated crisis uh, in Hungary organized by the government uh, for, for, for terrible 
reasons. I don't know how much everyone who's listening might be familiar with the Hungarian context, but um, yeah, the, the, I think it's fair to say that the current um, regime is one which has used anti-migrant and anti-refugee policies as a way of whipping up lots of hate and fear in the country. And it did so at the time in 2015-16 by essentially trapping large numbers of people in the country for over over one over one summer and then letting them all go and like playing basically playing games with people's lives. And at that time I think there was really like a bit of a kick for um people who had been talking about setting up this program thinking okay like what can we how can the university now respond although i shouldn't have spoken so much about that because i wasn't here at the time i was doing field work in india so maybe prem wants to add a little bit more about then how no he doesn't he's shaking his head (laughs) and um and then i'll just say yes so then so then all we've started as a weekend program it started uh just like as an informal thing uh, mostly because people were coming and going and then it started to develop into being into having different um aspects as well some of which was more about helping students get into uh, get into further education, but also expanding the idea of what types of people are accepted um, come into a university, basically, and what they can learn. So then, it's always so now a lot of our some of our courses are about helping students get into full time study, but many many of the other courses that that we run are are like academic or intellectual courses that are for people to you know be curious and learn new things learning for learning's sake some of them which is a wonderful thing some of them are like skills based courses like around language or computer skills and so on and some are more creative as well like using you know the arts to sort of you know explore and understand society a bit differently and all of these courses together we think and we hope like sort of cultivate critical thinking amongst um, students and allow them to be more active, critical citizens in Europe and and elsewhere, rather than being sort of um, subject to these very problematic integrationist style um, programs that that often are are developed for people termed refugees. You know, they need to like make up for lack and stuff like this. We always want to sort of, yeah, move beyond that. So that's basically what Olive has does and has done in the past and hopefully will continue to do in the future and just to add the other program that we run which is um uh, the university preparatory program or olive up so it shares the same ethos as olive weekend i mean the division between weekend and up is just in terms really of the of the um of its academic purposes, uh, really, uh, the ethos is the same. They, they both uh, intend to foster critical inquiry, uh, critical and independent participation, uh, avoiding integrationist schemes. And the university preparatory program um, really tries to build learning and build confidence of uh, students, refugee students, or just people who have experienced displacement to help them make competitive applications to university programs. And this is a concrete way in which we seek to open up the university. Thank you. I'm, um, I, I also wanted to circle back to something that you, you all said I wanted to hear about the Olive program um, more in depth. So thank you for sharing about that. But I also wanted to spend a few minutes here towards the beginning as well, because um, you referenced it, talking about um, you know, some of the contributing um, authors and the diversity that's represented in the roles and the spaces that they occupy in higher ed. And you, you, you spoke to that a little bit, but maybe you could um, speak to that a little bit more. Sure. I mean, this was this was like a key thing, I think, from the very beginning, um, where if we're going, you know, there's a, there's a lot of 
writing often about people who are termed refugees, but very not very often it's done together with them or not very often are they given space to write themselves about their own experiences. And so this was this was key from the beginning. We actually wanted also to have editors from uh, who had displaced background, but it didn't work out in the end because... As I'm sure many people who listen to this uh, podcast know, like doing an edited book is a long and thankless task, and it's not a, it's not one that has monetary rewards. So if you're not in, uh, so if you're not like engaged full time in academia, it's very hard to sort of find the, find the time and space to do that. But in, so we wanted anyway in the book to basically have authors as much as possible who um, so a mixture of course of academics who are thinking about these things, of practitioners who are working within these programs, and of students who have experienced these programs. And sometimes those things mix together. Sometimes people can be a you know an academic who's also a displaced person who's also worked within a program as well. You know, and uh, and so these these all things mix together. So I, f- I I think it's actually what's quite nice and in- innovative about the book is that we don't distinguish also on this sort of basis when we organize the chapters the chapters are organized thematically um and they hopefully speak to one another because you know because of their content um and hopefully you don't know who who is the refugee and who isn't the refugee by like scanning down the names or you know only you you learn from actually the content of the chapters people's particular positionalities uh, within the university structures mm. thank you well and and that was one of the things that I noted is um, one of the central features of the book is the way it does put theory in conversation with practice. Can you talk about your experience working in an access program that's doing kind of the hands-on work while simultaneously um, you're involved as scholars engaged in critical analysis of the larger cultural and political landscape in which the program operates? So in other words, sort of the challenges and rewards of of yourselves occupying multiple spaces and roles in relation to um, access programs for displaced students. Yes, sure. Um, I I think um, um, many of us at Olive, um, we work broadly with, as you call it, the landscape which in which displaced people are occupied, and and we can be and we are quite critical of the way in which this landscape is viewed. This landscape often places um, people who are called refugees as um, as victims of one sort or another, or as or as security threats. The outcome of this is that people that people lose their voice and or they are subject to forms of intervention that seek to educate them, that seek to bring them up, bring them to a level of something or other, of cultural or political or economic um, um, status that makes them, in a certain discourse, in a certain practice, approximate to European norm. So what I'm getting at is that there's a a certain embedded inequality and a cultivated way of seeing that places people who are called refugees in a position of lack. They need integration, either into education systems, into political systems, economic systems, whatever. And I think one of the things that really informs our ethos at Olive is that we are... um, we try explicitly not to be that type of organization. We try explicitly not to see our students as uh, as um, as as um, people requiring humanitarian intervention. We are an education program, and we strive to cultivate that education program together with people who are uh, who have experienced displacement. 
it's also important, I think, that we have over the last three years or so cultivated um, a research and praxis program, which is really um, about reflecting on how our programs can um, foster welcoming learning environments that can be fulfilling spaces for people who've experienced marginalization like refugees. And I would just add to that very briefly that I think it's essential that research and practice go together in this field. I have been at workshops and conferences when I've heard about programs uh, which are designed for displaced people where there's not that level of critical reflection which takes place. And this has led to, in my mind, some quite problematic ideas emerging about the position of the students, but also about the overall position of these programs within university structures as well. And uh, so I think it's, it's, it's really essential. And, and I think that's what's been great about doing the book and speaking with the authors as well, is that for many of the authors and ourselves, it's, it's an ongoing journey where we're constantly being pushed um, and made to reflect on what we do by engaging in something like co-editing a book. And um, I mean, I think it's one of the best things you can have um, as a teacher or as a program designer is that when you see students go through the program and they become really critically engaged thinkers and they start to critique the programs they've come through, then it means, okay, then it's been a success, right? And then if, you, if you're happy when the students do that, then we need to push ourselves that one step further and say, okay, then what can we do by keep on learning, by keep on pushing ourselves to run better programs? Hmm. Yes, uh, it kind of shows you've done, you've done your job or... or what you've intended to do. Um, I, I want to take a moment here to acknowledge, you know, terms, which is one of the first things actually you do in the introduction of the book. Um, you clarify your terms. So I want to take a moment to do that here because, um, you know, we've, we've used the term displaced students um, as well as refugee students. And so you, you do talk about the significance and meaning of using the term displaced students versus refugee students. So can you kind of unpack that for us a bit? Well, our first um, our starting point of our starting point where we critique the idea of uh, sorry we sorry I lost my train of thought just as I started. Um, uh, refugee is a legal category. It's a legal category that absolutely fails to encompass the multiplicities of displacement, the multiplicities of displacement experience that people have. Um, it has led to situations where um, people who have fled certain types of insecurity, certain types of persecution, are seen as um, undesirable economic migrants, whereas other types of people are seen as uh, refugees because they fit certain types of legal categories. Um, it's also important to emphasize that there's a certain history to that. The, um, the legal construct of a refugee is a... Um, <laughs> is useful for states because it enables certain forms of exclusion and certain forms of, um, of inclusion of desirable populations. Um, the word displacement covers more broadly the... Um, the the multiple experiences of being displaced. Um, and I think we generally prefer that term, but at the same time, I think we feel, and there's one reason why it's in the title, that it's important to reappropriate and critique the word refugee so it doesn't become something that is simply um, 
a state construct that is useful for <laughs> for the political architecture of the modern state. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's actually interesting. You, you you mentioned that it's on the first page because it was it was it was a footnote actually. And then when it went through peer review, then uh, one of the peer reviewers said, "Why is this a footnote? Put it in your second paragraph, right? Um, just to make it clear up front, like why why we decided to use certain terms and not others." Yes. Well, and I think you know, for my my thought there too, and I'm I'm very um, I think that was a great note. Um, language is so important as you know, there's a chapter on that as well. Um, language is really important and, um, to, it speaks to so many different things. And, um, I think for those, for, for people, you know, when you're studying something and you're you're so embedded in it, it might seem very basic, but you know, for someone who is, who has not spent years of their life around a certain topic, um, you know, it's very helpful at, at, at the onset to understand the thinking behind in- intentional terminology. Does that make sense? And certain things become very second nature as it is your life and work, but for others who are new um, to a field, uh, it's very helpful. So um, I, I did want to make sure we highlighted that um, and, and understood the the rationale behind it. And, and um, as Prem talked about, you know, there's, there's history behind different terms and, um, and then there's also, you know, value in reappropriating and, and, um, even as you acknowledge uh, some of the, you know, the history and the, uh, the way it's problematized. Um, you also write about um, a need for an expansive definition of university access. And one of the points made throughout the book is this idea of thinking beyond the moment of entry. Can you talk uh, more about that? Sure. Um, I think it's actually interesting because often people say, okay, we, we want access to universities. And you can see it now, actually, with after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and suddenly we have lots of Ukrainian students around Europe and lots of universities are saying, oh, you know, we're going to, you know, leave a certain amount of spaces in our programs for, for people fleeing uh, the war in Ukraine. And this is great, of course, it's good that people are doing this, but then what, you know, like, uh, what, what does that, what does that mean? If you just say, okay, yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a space there, but uh, that's basically it assumes um, that every student who arrives in the university is arriving in the, as the same type of student with the same sort of needs, the same sort of background and so on. And we know from our work, but also from the wonderful chapters that are in this book, that um, students who have experienced displacement often come with very, with very different life histories that mean that learning will take a different form when they're there. And I'm careful here because I don't want to say that they're lacking anything because that's certainly not the case. Often they bring things that students who are not, uh, who haven't experienced displacement can't bring certain forms of knowledge, certain types of experience, which should be uh, valued inside a university. But at the same time, it's, it's not enough just simply to say, okay, there's two refugee scholarships a year in our university. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, okay, but who, who are the types of refugees who will then be able to get those scholarships? Those who will who find themselves probably in a very, not very, in a, in a relatively comfortable position already, you know, who have maybe a certain middle-class habitus, who maybe have, you know, an academic um, background already or parents who have and so on. But if we want to think about university access being genuinely, radically, transformatively open, then it means saying, okay, we recognize that often people have had very complicated life histories, have suffered multiple moments of, of, of what, sorry, are suffering multiple marginalities, sometimes based on 
their refugee status or not, sometimes based on trauma they may have experienced um, in various ways, um, racism in the host society and so on. And then if, if we want those people not only to access but also to flourish inside university setting, then what, what do those groups of people need? Maybe they need particular skills like language or digital skills. Maybe they need forms of emotional support or solidarity. Maybe they need prep programs to help them sort of uh, um, understand the ways in which European, most of our chapters are about Europe, European higher education works. So it's not enough, we think, just to say, okay, there you are, there's a couple of spaces. But actually, as you can see in the chapters in the book, it's about thinking about all of the complexities that people who've experienced displacement bring with them when they set foot in a university and how to make sure that their past experiences are valued, but at the same time valued in a way that allows them to flourish in higher education. I can just add to what Ian is saying. I think, I mean, I think that the core point that Ian is saying is that access is not the same as inclusion. And if we were to foster inclusion, it, it can be, as Ian says, and in many of our chapters argue, it can be transformative of individual lives, but also of the university itself. Um, by including people who wouldn't, who norm, who do, who fall out, who who aren't really recognised uh, at the at the point of admissions, aren't recognised as having uh, the academic basis for entering into higher education, the university is thereby renewed. But it also has to be noted that this can be a disruptive process for the university. It can be an uncomfortable uncomfortable process with the university. The university needs to think about these things that Ian mentioned, support of different forms, whether it's emotional support or educational support. And fundamentally, the university would have to end up thinking about its pedagogies, about how it thinks about pedagogies, how it educates its teachers. And most universities don't educate their teachers, I should just add as a, <laughs> uh, in passing. Um, and it should also ultimately maybe think about its curricula. And all of these are disruptive, but this is how the university renews itself, I think. Um, and I think it's something that is really emphasized throughout the book. I love that um, that idea of, of an, an imagery of uh, the university renewing itself. Um, well, and what we were talking about here gets at um, the idea of, you know, why, and I, I would like you to speak a little bit more about this. You, you referenced it earlier, but, you know, the idea of... Um, the refugee integration and why that's problematic. So, you know, in you also do some historical and current framings of access to higher ed for displaced students. And I think Ian, you know, you may have even referenced, you know, other programs that maybe don't have the same level of, um, uh, you know, research and praxis together. Um, maybe that's part of it. Um, and and so it's about how you frame the the approach and you know, your programs and, and the book, obviously, uh, problematizing refugee integration versus a transformative educational experience. So could you talk a little bit more about about that uh, refugee integration being problematic and the historical and current framings that are there um, for displaced students? Um, well, uh, in terms of integration in society, I think one of the issues, at least when it comes to Europe and the United States, it is a little different, um, is that integration is very much seen as a uh, top-down process where students, oh, well, sorry, where displaced people are um, taught how to integrate into a society that is presumed to be actually there. And societies are not actually there in any 
real or present sense. So societies are always being uh, remade by the people in them. So there's an assumption of a certain idea of the principal culture or the principal um, way of being in a society that is then educated to newly arrived people. And this is, I mean, I think, and I think it underpins the book, this can be a very violent process. It's a process whereby um, many people of different backgrounds are subject to forms of um, of um, uh, education to to make them fit. And this can be quite a humiliating process. It's a process where the 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 value that new migrants can bring to societies is seen as very much secondary. So rather than integration, I think many of us, and certainly in the book, we prefer uh, the word inclusion um, because inclusion is dialogic, or at least it can be. It's about um, expanding and opening up societies um, by well, it's not even that. It's not even opening up society because society is always open. It's about recognizing the relations that people forge, encouraging the relations that people forge, encouraging the different ways of seeing and being, um, and and being welcoming of them. Similarly, at the university, we uh, universities can try to integrate refugees and other marginalized program groups, which again means. Um, addressing what is perceived as a lack, um, or it can foster inclusion, which is necessarily disruptive of a university, but disruptive in, in a very, uh, in a potentially um, very welcome way. Mm -hmm. And I would just like add there, what's, if we can think about it on a, on a level of a, you know, an academic degree or program or right down to a, a class that uh, someone is teaching or people are learning in, it's also then about recognizing that there are certain ways that we have come to know the world uh, in Europe and North America, you know, that have they've become unquestionably um, taken as the, the way to do stuff, right? Certain epistemological um, assumptions that underlie a lot of stuff um, in not only in social sciences and humanities, but in the natural sciences as well, and so on. Um, once you if you start to question this and if you start to question this together with people who've been learning in very different educational environments, this is this is potentially really exciting for a university. It shouldn't be something that universities see as a problem <laughs> that they, you know, that they need to sort of uh, integrate these people who are arriving at their gates so that they understand things the same way that we currently understand them what what i mean if we if we can't as academics recognize that difference has the potential to be wonderful for us as teachers and as researchers and as learners then is then it's then it doesn't bode well for the rest of society right we're meant to be uh the types of people who can who can embrace um, different worldviews and to try and understand them and to try and push our knowledge forward. So, yeah, this is why this integrationist idea of um, higher education programs designed for displaced people is problematic. Well, and in, in 
you know, we've talked a lot about um, opening the university and, and making that transformative. And a lot of the ideas you've touched on, you know, speak to you, you offer in, in the book three proposals for how to make openings transformative. Um, and that first one, the first proposal you, you cite talks about creating education programs for learners versus humanitarian programs um, by and for, in many cases, the university. Um, so can you kind of connect that idea. I mean, it's kind of along the lines of what we've been, what we've been talking about um, in the sense of the, instead of the universe, instead of you, know, we're going to teach you everything you need to know and not recognizing that you're bringing something to the table as well in your own experience and history, um, you know, making that a, a two-way street versus a top-down, um, you know, kind of, as you said, a uh, you know, education in that way to educate you on all the, all the, all the ways of being and and knowledge that you're lacking. We're going to impart that to you versus kind of this two-way street of, of being open and learning from, um, uh, displaced students and, and any student really. Um, so could you talk a little bit about that first proposal and, and, and how you see that idea of creating education programs for learners? It's great. I think you summed it up really well. Um, I would, <laughs> <laughs> so I don't need to answer. No, I don't need to take your thunder. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fine. The only thing maybe to add is um, if 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 it is framed uh, in a very um, if it is framed in a humanitarian way instead of an educational way, it's it can be extremely limiting on the student's ability to grow. It's such a paternalistic way of of bringing people into the university, like as a, ch- as a charity case. No one wants to be a charity case, and especially like in a, in a university setting where we want people to develop and grow and learn and all these things that we love about education, where education where you don't know where it's going, you know, where like you learn together with students or you learn together doing your research if you're if you're put there as a as a charity case in a humanitarian framing you can't you can't you can't it's hard to escape that right so this is uh the things that you said plus i would just add that as well i don't know if a prem wants to add anything more um i just add one more thing which is that um um, if it is framed as a humanitarian response then it's an exception Uh, the university is not a humanitarian organization it acts it can act or it can be it can want to act in situations of crisis or an exception and the consequence then is that education programs for marginalized groups are isolated from the university itself it's something the university can do in times of emergency it can do if there's spare funds if they're at, as a point of exception. Um, but then these programs, as we try and argue to in the book, should be central to the university's mission and should be central to the university's education mission because it is one way of um, expanding that mission, of renewing the university, as we said earlier. Well, and Ian, as, as um, you were speaking, I was thinking about, um, you know, that idea that you're coming in, uh, students coming in with that, almost like that label, right? Um, and and it, it made me think of um, uh, Lisa Nanda's work on belonging, and I've had her on the show, and she has uh, um, one of her things that she studies is academic belonging. So this idea that students actually feel like they belong and what that takes for students to actually feel like they belong. And so thinking about you know, coming in with a particular label or feeling like you're an exception or feeling like you don't really belong, but they're kind of letting you in, you know, that is not very, that's not empowering. And that's, um, 
you know, not going to encourage students to speak out, find their voice, to explore, to, you know, take full advantage of, um, of this space of, of being creative and thinking and growing. Um, and I was thinking about what you were saying earlier when we were talking about moving beyond the point of entry. It's not just about getting in, but it's actually about helping students thrive um, and that sense of belonging and that I'm here and that I'm wanted um, and that I, and that, you know, this program isn't, you know, hanging on by a limb at the margins necessarily, but is part of the central part of, of this institution where I am. Um, I think all of that speaks to, you know, um, that experience of feeling like I do belong here and I am supposed to be here. Um, and, 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 if, and I was thinking then when you were talking, part of it is, okay, sometimes the students who, who have experienced displacement that end up in a university are just very, average students and that's also totally fine because that's actually a form of belonging in a university that many students experience right they go to university they get average grades you know they fall in love they have their heart broken they go they drink too much at a party then they laugh about it 20 years later you know but it wasn't like you know that that going to university was you know the sort of life-defining moment for them it was like you know something that they did and that's also totally fine as well we we don't need all of the students who come through access programs or have experienced displacement to be you know the next superstars it's totally fine if sometimes they're just you know the student who muddles through with average grade and goes on because that's also a form of creating exceptional exceptionalism as well if we constantly need those students to be you know geniuses Hmm. Well, and that, and you write up, you all write about this, and then that, that, in in essence, you know, when that's highlighted and that's what's focused on, then it becomes it's a service to it's a service to and for the institution, right? To highlight those, like, look what we've done, like, look we've taken these students, and and the, look look at this immense success that they've had, and quote unquote success in the ways that that's defined and dominant in dominant culture, right? Um, and it becomes then, uh, you know. Uh, programs for the university, not really, you know, the, the gain is for them, um, and, and for the institution and not for the students. Um, and I, I think it speaks to the point too, I mean, just generally when you're talking about any student that it's okay. Yeah. That it's okay to be average, um, and for it, for the university experience, not to be the defining moment of your life, um, or career per se. And not everybody's going to be an academic and like fall in love with, you know, some discipline and go be a major scholar somewhere. Um, I'd like to kind of move through some of the proposals as well, because um, we've touched on uh, several of them. And, and and the second proposal that you offer is to allow for disruptive education. Um, and, and we've kind of talked about that. And one of the things that when you were talking about education where and, and um, you know, as almost a two way street between the student, you know, that we're open as as academics and as institutions to what displaced students and any student really brings to the classroom, brings to the experience, brings to university. Um, that um, and you write about how that that in essence destabilizes hierarchies of expertise. So if you can maybe unpack that second proposal a little bit more and that idea of of I think why that's a challenge for 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 some in in um, higher and for the institution because of that disruption. Well, I, I, I think it's partly it's a challenge because um, I mean, quite fundamentally, no one likes their steady and comfortable ways of doing things to be fundamentally challenged. The steady and comfortable ways of doing things, for example, of fostering education or working in university. Um, allows for 
a certain professionalization of what you do. It allows for, as we write also in the book, in another chapter, in Ian's chapter in the book, it allows for education, uh, for academic work to be um, um, benchmarked against certain ideas of prestige. So by creating standard regulated ways of doing things by knowing the types of students that we have by knowing the types of syllabi that we will teach year on year year on year um, then what happens is not only is that knowledge not renewed but certain ways of um, uh, of conducting oneself academically become um uh, arise and education the project of education which is uncomfortable disruptive rewarding ultimately uh, becomes secondary to the job of 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 many of us at universities i'm not sure how clear i am here but uh, but one of the things about uh, create about establishing stable ways of educating people is that education becomes a secondary matter how to, as a, as we mentioned earlier universities rarely train their teachers we know what we will teach and we're told to go out there and teach we go off and do our research we build up prestige points etc cetera, etc cetera. but if we think about education and opening up education things become disrupted we have to spend more time and energy in thinking about how to um open up classrooms and syllabi and bring people in. Um, and it leads, perhaps, hopefully, to renewal of the of the entire university project and of what it means to work at a university. Yeah, because I'm sure, like, many people who are working in and around university and often see things, hear things, feel things that... Um, they find problematic, or at least they, I hope they do. I mean, I, I don't think it's an overstatement to say that higher education is in various forms of crisis at any one time, like in, in many different contexts, like uh, financially, definitely, like uh, all, all universities or many universities seem now to be struggling. Um, and But I think a, a wider thing is like struggling for purpose, if you know what I mean. Like what's the point of a university today? What's the purpose of a university? And I think it's... Um, really important to keep asking this question uh, as we move forward and, and sort of decide what universities will be this this century because I think for many people now for many young students who are coming in um, they don't want to if they have to pay they don't necessarily want to pay massive amounts of money that they have debt for the rest of their lives to pay off um, necessarily they're looking for you know professional type courses that have a more immediate monetary um, response and then um, impact and then also to try and learn outside of university structures like you know the sort of the digitalization of education poses a fundamental challenge there as well and so if we're thinking about what the purpose of a university is faced by you know like in some cases, dwindling student numbers or certain programs or disciplines that are being sort of marginalized or so on. I'd like to think, okay, well, let's disrupt what we've traditionally thought of universities being for. Okay, yeah, we have research. Okay, yeah, we have teaching. But I think we can also have a social mission as well of a university. And I think the chapters in the book show many different ways how this can 
how this can um, exist. And it doesn't necessarily have to be with displaced learners, but more generally, can universities be active players in the world for social good? And I think they can be, uh, but it needs a lot of work from universities to reimagine themselves. And this shouldn't be distinct from teaching and learning, by the way, this can be part of teaching and learning as well. So the, the third proposal that, that um, you all put forward is to defund the management. Um, so what does that mean? What does that mean in the context of access for displaced students and access programs, since we're talking about that specifically? Simple mathematics. We know how much it costs to run the programs we work in. People who work in similar access programs probably know how much, I'm sure they know how much it costs to run those programs. You can also find out how much your vice chancellors or rectors or presidents or whatever you have at your various institutions get paid every year. You can find out how much all the other top 10, 20 people are paid for all these jobs that seem to just emerge uh, or have been emerging over the last decades. And then ask yourself a question, which is more important at the university? Do we, you know, we can run a whole program for, you know, 20% of a rector's wage, like, um, like what's what's going on? Like, what's going on? And um, um, depends on how much the particular rector is paid in a particular institution. I'm not in any way suggesting uh, <laughs> that our current rector is paid a certain amount. Um, I'm testing the limits of academic freedom here. And um, but uh, yeah, so I've, this is it basically. Like like programs sometimes programs can be very cheap and they struggle to get funding sometimes programs can be expensive like preparatory programs um preparatory access programs are expensive because you need to invest a lot of time uh, with the students you need to give them scholarships they don't so they can focus on their learning uh, and not focus on you know working and other things but then it's a question like it's a choice right it's a choice at a university like what we choose to prioritize and what we don't and i would say the last 20 30 years in in the UK, definitely, in different European countries, growingly, in the US for sure, has shown that these university managers um, have not been great at getting the priorities right for a university. They've been good at giving themselves pay rises and expanding the managerial class, mm. but they've not been so great at you know, funding programs that expand and open up the university for people who otherwise wouldn't get there. Yeah. I mean, just to add to what Ian is saying, I think when we talk about defund uh, the management, uh, it's it's not about getting rid of managing as such. It's about rethinking management, you know, to, 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 to try to think about another way of organizing things and how this organization might be done uh, from anything to do, you know, from um, how budgets are made to how money is distributed, to how the institution is governed, um, and 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 I think that it it's not just arguing to take away money from it, but to rethink the fundamental practice of how the university is to be organized and uh, and managed. Well, I think that's the I think that's a that is a running theme throughout the book. I was and, and even through this conversation of. of considering how to open the university to displace students necessitates kind of exploring those larger questions about the purpose and the role and the processes of, you know, higher ed institutions. Um, and so as we kind of um, sort of start winding down, I, I, I do want to ask, what advice would you offer to those in higher ed, um, be those practitioners, administrators, educators, policymakers, um, who are considering starting access programs for displaced students? To read our book. 
Prem, more? I mean, to read our book in relation to other books as well, and then to to write another book. But uh, for me, fundamentally, and I had to give a talk on Olive earlier today, and a similar question was asked, um, or I imagine they asked, and I I responded. um, It's important. I mean, we've run Olive for six, seven years now. And one thing I think that we still struggle with is the fact that Olive is not central to the institutional structure uh, or institutional structure of the university. So Olive remains something that is um, not quite off the university. It's funded when there is external funding available. It is promoted when it suits the university to promote it. And it can be marginalized, and it has actually been suspended um, at certain moments when the university feels that it needs to do that. And I think what's important when we think about, and I think central to everything we talked about in the book, is that these... um, preparatory programs or marginalized groups, be they refugees or whatever, or whoever, should be central to uh, the university's mission and should be a core part of its institutional structure, not a tangential part of it. Yeah, so in practical terms, that means to try and escape the cycles of project funding and try and get into more program funding rather than project funding and to get sort of institutional buy-in um, from the universities. I mean, maybe this is maybe not the first year we, this happens, but to already start to think about that from the beginning mm-hmm. because otherwise it's very easy to shut things down, um, especially there's a problematic ten- trend um, when people think about the movement of refugees is that people pay attention to what's just on the news at the moment donors as well like you know foundations so when olive was set up there were a particular group of you know refugees who were good refugees and there were people coming from syria the the war there was was very bad at the time but afghans were bad refugees because afghanistan was safe at the time supposedly you know according to you know discourses at the time then last year um when the taliban took over afghanistan then afghans were good refugees and you could find you know support monetary support and institutional support for afghans up until march this year when all of that got directed towards ukrainians and um and if you get stuck in these cycles of basically news cycles or attention cycles when it comes to running education programs it's really makes it really really difficult because you know like we we get you know approaches from people who want to fund you know education programs for ukrainian refugees why just ukrainian refugees why not you know everyone who's been displaced more broadly so this is a difficult thing to to manage as well but i would say aside from these things um is to is to for people who are thinking about setting up programs is to go and speak to people in your local community who are already working in you know through in, in good ways through expressions of solidarity and so on who are working with the, the same groups of people to find out what people's needs and expectations are because there's sometimes a sense amongst academics that they think they know a lot because they've read a lot but sometimes they're not open to reaching out um, to speak to people who are outside the university walls. So I think that's also really essential as well. 
Thank you. Thank you both so much. It's been great talking with you today. Um, so I just want to thank you for coming on and discussing opening up the university, teaching and learning with refugees with us. It's Ian M. Cook and Prem Kumar Rajaram are two of the editors of this book, along with Celine Cotton. Thank you both. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dana. I'm Dr. Dana Malone. This is The Academic Life, and you've been listening to New Books Network. Please join us again.